And now, live on tape from Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California, it's The Rodcast. Brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the host of The Rodcast, David Steele. have it folks another great episode of the broadcast coming at you thank you larry babb for that fine introduction once again it is so good to be back so good to be back uh we have a great episode for you today and i'm probably going to make a lot of people happy when i say the following uh, i'm going to keep this intro short uh, you know there's so much to talk about when it comes to today's guest, but I'm going to go ahead and let him tell his story. And man, oh man, it is a good one. What I will say is what a pleasure it was to sit down with Steve Gibbs and learn things, learn things about him and his life that I honestly had no idea about. And I, I think even our sharpest listeners will feel the same way. Y you know, the name Steve Gibbs is so synonymous with NHRA drag racing uh, that they they simply go hand in hand. When I hear or I read his name, that's where my mind goes. When when I see a big time drag racing event taking place, I think of how Steve had a hand in building and guiding that. In fact, I'll let the listener be the judge, but dare I say <laughs> that there. There are at least two nostalgia drag racing events that are on the calendar today that I don't believe would exist if it hadn't been for Steve Gibbs. So I'll go ahead and take this opportunity to thank him for that. But mostly, I want to thank him for his generosity, for just being such a good dude, and for caring so much about hot rod and drag racing history. Now, in case you don't know, Steve has an interview series called Hook Nose. That's H-O-O-K-K-N-O-W-S, Hook Nose. And he, you can look Steve up on Facebook and find this series. It is absolutely fantastic. Uh, he's taken it upon himself to call on legend after legend, all old friends of his, by the way, to sit down with him and film a long-form live stream video interview series. Some recent guests have been Ed Pink, Pete Eastwood, and I, I even hear that an upcoming episode is going to be with Don the Snake Prudhomme. So, incredibly cool stuff. And of course, you know, these are just guys that Steve has known for decades, but to us, they and their stories are priceless, and we thank him for recognizing that fact and that this all needs to be documented. So, in other words, and to put it at its mildest, Steve Gibbs is our kind of guy. So, I think you'll feel the same way as we bring you part one of this multi-part series featuring drag racing legend Steve Gibbs. Well, Steve Gibbs, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate your time. I start every interview the same. State your full name, where you were born, and when. Well, it's Edgar Steve Gibbs, born in Franklin, North Carolina, 1940. Hillbilly kid. And uh, what was that life like in, in that town? Was it rural life? I'm a, well, I was only seven years old when we left to come to California, so I don't have a real lot of recollections. I do remember very rural. I remember... Uh, Fact when we got electricity in our house, I mean, we lived in a basic, uh, you know, my mom was a single mom and uh, my uncles were the men of the family and they had just got back from World War II when they decided there was more to life than walking behind a plow in North Carolina and the whole family moved to California in 1947. When you say the whole family, this would be your mom and her brothers? This would be my mom, the brothers, my grandmother, and... Uh, 
myself and my little sister, who, uh, one of the reasons we came to California, my little sister was a, a blue baby. It was a heart defect. And one of the few places could do the surgery at that time was Children's Hospital in Hollywood. And she had that surgery and survived it, and two years later passed from leukemia. So it was really a, a tragedy in the family, you know. Uh, but had she not had that illness, still might be in North Carolina. I don't know. There were, there were other reasons, but that was one of the big factors. And your father, did you know your father? I got to know my father later in life. I knew who he was. And um, it's interesting because my real last name is Dalton. It's been legally changed, but my father's name was Joseph Montgomery Dalton. And it was a bitter, ugly divorce, and my uncle became my legal guardian, and they changed my name Dalton back to my mother's maiden name. I've got all the documentation on it, but I always knew my dad, and I met him later in life, and we had a, a decent relationship, you know, and he, uh, he led a hard life, too. He, he was always one to say, I don't want to hear about the good old days, because in his mind, there were no good old days. He, all he remembers is walking behind a plow with a pair of shoes that were four sizes too big and then going to the war and suffering from malaria and spending months in a hospital in New Zealand. And so he, he had a hard life. He was kind of a hard guy. I, you know, I'm glad I got to know him later in life and got to know a couple of half-brothers and another family that they're still back in North Carolina, and I've kind of reacquainted with them. But, um, you know... California, you know, from seven years old, that, that's been my life. So your father stayed in North Carolina? He stayed, well, he actually was in Florida for a while, and he had a little hardware business, and he had property in North Carolina and, until he passed, uh, and I'd visited him, and like I say, we had a decent relationship, and um, uh, I'm glad I got to know him. I think everybody kind of likes to know where they, and my mom, excuse me, my mom never, she never badmouthed him. I think uh, they were very, very young. My mom was only 16 years old when I was born. Typical rural America hillbilly existence, you know, right out of the Depression. And uh, I mean, it was a hard life. Uh, I can't say I lived a hard life. I, we, we were, I think we were poor, but we never really went without. You know, there was always food on the table and medical care when it was needed. So, you know, we got through life okay and uh, no complaints. And you said it was, it was you and your sister? Was that all that, the kids? Yeah, that was it. My, my little sister and again, my mom, uh, uh, you know, had this child. Uh, and her name was Brenda and she was three years younger than I. And we came to California and um, again, the episode with the heart and uh, leukemia. And um, I think back on that, that was a tough deal, to, you know, going through the leukemia, really hard on my mom. On Christmas it happened, she died like two days after Christmas. When they diagnosed her with the leukemia, basically they said take her home and make her comfortable when she died two weeks later. And there was no time to really, and there was no treatment whatsoever. 1949 is when she passed. And, but Christmas time is tough on my mom, who passed a couple, you know, last year. But and my stepdad, who was a good stepdad, he took his own life two days before Christmas, you know, a few years back. So Christmas was always hard to enjoy around my mom. You know, she did the best she could, and my mom was great. But um, you know, one of the dark sides of the, you know, it's just life. Yeah, that is that's understandable. That the holidays would be tough on her. It was, it was tough on her, but um, she was a hardworking gal, coffee shop waitress. Sometimes the sole means of supporting the family if my uncles were out of work. But uh, like I say, we always got by. I never felt like I went without, you know, and when my mom married my stepdad, he was from Chicago. So we relocated in Chicago for a couple of years, and then he decided to come back to California, and that's so there was a two-year period when I was in grammar school that we were in, in Chicago, which was kind of interesting, living in a big city for that period of time. Mm. And, um, so you lived in Chicago proper? In Chicago in proper, on the southwest side. Uh, went to um, uh, sixth and seventh grade there. 
always found me a job. I was either a paper boy or delivering something. I always figured out a way to make <laughs> make some money. Hell, I sold fireworks there. I used to be able to, I could get a catalog and order fireworks through the mail and get some really good fireworks. I'm talking, I'm a sixth and seventh grade. They would deliver them to the house and I'd sell them to the other kids at school. And, you know, good, good stuff that you, know, you can't find anywhere anymore. But um, always been a little bit of a pyro. Yeah, the kind of thing that could never happen today. No. <laughs> they no, probably don't no even way. make I, those I fireworks. I a couple of years in Chicago. I'd, uh, I'd travel all over that town uh, with no fear whatsoever. Get on the bus, have a handful of coins, go anywhere in town. Go to Soldier Field and watch the stock car races, go to the museums, um, all by myself. I'm talking sixth, seventh grade kid. I'd no more let my kids that age take off in a big city like that, but it was just the times and never any bad experiences. What do you remember about getting to California. Do you have memories of? Yeah, I do. I remember we took the train. Um, when it come time to move, they sold at an auction, sold what belongings we had in North Carolina. We took a train from Asheville to New Orleans. And from New Orleans, we took a train they call the Sunset Limited, which is, a, I think it may still run. It's a pretty famous uh, line. And it was a steam engine at that time in 1947. So I, I remember some of that trip you know, coming cross country. I remember the dining car. I remember, for some reason, I remember the pancakes in the dining car, seven years old. I remember uh, coming to um, Union Station in Los Angeles where we arrived and um, the little house we had in Baldwin Park that my uncles had been out here earlier and kind of established. Uh, you know, they had bought a small little two bedroom house in Baldwin Park and um, we all moved in there and God, we had running water and we had gas and we didn't have a refrigerator, we had an ice box, which <laughs> a lot of people don't even know what an ice box is, but the guy would come around once every few days with another big chunk of ice, you know, and put it in there. And of course it was uh, no television and, you know, until probably earlier in the fifties, but it, you know, you didn't feel like you were going without because everybody else had basically the same thing. We we finally got a telephone and it was a you know party line, so you'd have to wait and, or eavesdrop on your neighbors to see what was going on. But uh, stuff like that, uh, kids can't fathom some of that stuff. But that was a big step up to have a telephone in your own house, you know. And a good humor guy would drive by, and the Helms truck would come by, and there was some pretty cool things then we had home delivery with the milk, you know, it, it's, it's kind of a shame some of that stuff has gone away. And that was, uh, just took it for granted at the time though. My God, it, it, it must have seemed like, uh, like you guys had almost won the lottery in a way compared, because you're telling me that you remember being a child in North Carolina yeah. when they installed electricity in your Absolutely, home. Absolutely, yeah. And, and just a matter of, what were we talking, three to five years later, you're in California, and you've got a telephone, yeah. you've, you've got food delivery. And, it was and, a big uh, step up. In the whole yeah. country, I think a lot of people were going through that. I think the war obviously changed life for a lot of guys. You know, they went off to the service. Many of them come out of rural America. I mean, and, and I think they saw there was more life. And at that time, California was really a land of opportunity. I mean, you could move to California. You could, you could buy a home at a reasonable price and work was pretty plentiful with the aircraft industry was a big thing at that time and my uncles were in construction and and, and they would make money ever how they had to. I mean they used to love it when cold season would come around because when the frost warnings came out they'd go light smudge pots and out in Baldwin Park in the San Gabriel Valley it was half citrus groves and when the, it seemed like the weather was colder back then because always during the winter it would be frost mornings and they'd light these damn smudge pots and you'd wake up in the morning with all this black soot around your nose. I mean, it was awful, but they could make money going out and lighting smudge pots at night. Uh, and you did what you had to do to make money. I, I mowed lawns. I, uh, I mean, I, I can't remember a time I wasn't making a little money doing something with a paper route or mowing lawns or babysitting or whatever it took when you're, you know, that age, you know, and, um, 
grew up, went to the same um, grammar school, um, went to high school in Baldwin Park, graduated there, met my wife. We dated starting in junior year of high school and went to junior, uh, junior college together for a couple of years and got married uh, when we were both 20 years old and started that phase of life. Do you remember what it was like as far as meeting kids when you got to California? Was that something that it, is a memory for you? As opposed there, there were to the a lot kids. of kids around, it, mm -hmm. and it seemed like the neighborhood that we moved into, there were a lot of young families, and there were kids, um, almost every house. We lived in a kind of a short little block in Baldwin Park, but I think probably two-thirds of the houses, and it was probably only maybe a total of 20 homes in this little area, but there were kids in every one of them. And, uh, and so, you know, the school was good. I don't remember any uh, problem uh, assimilating. We probably had a little hillbilly accent, but that rubbed off, I think, pretty quick. Um, and uh, life was good in school. And we, uh, I had started first grade in North Carolina. We didn't have kindergarten in, for whatever reason in North Carolina. So when we moved out here when I was seven, I finished that year in the first grade and went on through school in Baldwin Park. And then the two years we went to Chicago and then we came back to Baldwin Park. So that's the only two years I wasn't in that school system out there, but uh, it was good. I mean, Baldwin Park was just a blue collar community, working class people. Um, nobody was uh, rich, but nobody was really too poor. You know, it was just kind of typical mid-America, well, Southern California, but I mean, I think we, pretty normal upbringing. You know, I can't think of anything. I didn't have any really negative experiences growing up. I'm, I'm fortunate, you know, my family, we, we all got along. I was fortunate to have a nice relationship with a great lady for a long time. And uh, so I can think of life being a lot worse. Yeah, it's not, I mean, this is a popular story. The, the people who came to California around that time. It's really interesting. And it's interesting that you, you, you may think that you misspoke, but maybe it was a kind of a Freudian slip. You said it was like mid-America, yeah. but it kind of, it probably was that way because so many people were transplants. I think mid-America is far as That's what California was. Yeah. It was made yeah. of people and, uh, from it was, other uh, places. You know, California was, uh, again, I was old enough when we came out here to appreciate the difference between coming out of the mountains, which we lived in a gorgeous part of North Carolina. If you go back to Franklin right now, I mean, it's a gorgeous retirement area, you know, and all retirement homes, and you can't find a farm anymore back there. I mean, it's a gorgeous part of the state. And I mean, I could see myself spending more time back there. I still have relatives there that my ancestors moved into the Carolinas in the 1700s. And on my grandmother's side, the shepherd side of the family was a, a big, you know, they had a lot of property in that, in the Smoky Mountains. I mean, they, slave owners, I mean, it was all that, that background in, the, in, in my side of the family from the South. Um, and I, when I go back there, I kind of feel at home too. Even though I was only seven, there's a comfortable feeling. I was there earlier this year and visited my cousins who still own a sizable piece of land there from the original shepherd, uh, you know, property. And um, I'd always kind of wanted to take my mom back there and build her a little summer house or something, but never happened. Now, you said something interesting. It went by quick. Okay. <laughs> but when you were talking about living in Chicago, you said you went to the stock car races. Yeah. Do you feel like that was when you got bit by the bug as far as your interest in racing? It, it could have been, I, I don't know. I guess um, I hadn't really ever thought about that, but I did a lot of things in Chicago, uh, going to different events, you know, went to ball games at Wrigley Field and watched the Cubs play. I had my stepdad's stepdad <laughs> kind of took me in. He was a great, great old guy from, from Italy and um, he was really good to me. And so again, I'm sixth, seventh grade, and uh, he would take me to the ball games and in different places. And, uh, but um, 
as far as uh, he never went to the stock car races, I'm not even sure how I found out about the stock car races at Soldier Field, but I went several times. I'd get on the bus, I think, and then I had to get on the L, they called it, the, you know, the train. But I would get wherever I needed to go, and hell, I'd get in late at night. My mom, you know, she'd let me go. I, it, and there's probably no reason not to let me go. There just wasn't any sense I was doing something really edgy or dangerous back then. You know, I'm sure there were risks out there, but uh, I never saw it. I mm. never saw it. So do you, was there a time in your life when you developed an interest in racing or did it just find you nat naturally well, you found it through your I, professional life? For whatever reason, well, we moved to California and I grew up in Baldwin Park. The first car I bought, my first, you know, the 1950 Ford Club Coupe, I bought it when I was 16 years old. And there was a drag strip right next to Baldwin Park in an unincorporated area that now is Irwindale. And it was the original San Gabriel drag strip. And I mean, I knew it was there. I stopped, I went in, I, I liked what I saw. I, you know, we're all, most of the kids back then, your car was a big deal. You could work on your car and you know, I didn't have enough money to put a lot into it, but you could do what you could out of a Jay-Z Whitney catalog. I mean, I get a straight bar grill or, you know, we did a little, hard to even call it customizing, you know, and put a set of cutouts, you know, and uh, Billy Cub caps. There was no, <laughs> it was no real good wheels back then. So I liked the Billy Cub caps on, but you do what you could with what you had to work with. But anyway, uh, the drag strip was there and I went and I was fascinated by it and I, they were running every weekend. I'd go park the car somewhere else and walk over. You know, I think it's probably a dollar to get in and uh, I'd probably slide by that, you know, but it was just, it. I was fascinated by it and one thing led to another to where I wound up actually working at the drag strip, the second St. Gabriel, and um, wound up taking a, I mean, I was a fan, you know, and I, but I wanted to do more and I wound up getting a part-time job and basically turned it into a career. And that, that first San Gabriel drag strip that you went to, you said you were in high school, you were a teenager. Right. Mm -hmm. What year would that have been? This would have been 57, 58. And it was in, it used to be just a riverbed that flowed from the Santa Fe Dam. If you go up in that part of town, there's a huge dam that was built years ago. It was kind of a, an emergency dam for water that's stored up in the canyon, up in San Gabriel Canyon. And, um, and below it, it was just a riverbed that flowed, you know, basically down to, I imagine it worked its way to the ocean. And the drag strip was just in the riverbed. And then they went through and redeveloped that where they actually come in with flood control channels and, and made it all, you know, much more controllable. And when they did that, they shut down the first drag strip. When they were finished with it, the second drag strip literally wound up right adjacent to it. In fact, the original track surface wound up being part of the pit area for the second San Gabriel. They were that close with a big berm in between, but you could... You can go out there today, and if you drive up the 605 freeway, you can you can see where all that stuff was, and I think maybe even a little bit of the pavement from the second San Gabriel, and um, and that's where I got my first uh, job as a part-time guy at that second track. Did you ever race your 50 Ford? I never did. I never did. I didn't have enough money to fix it if I broke it, and uh, so. Um, no, it never made a lap down the racetrack. Uh, you know, it was just, uh, you know, I'd have been embarrassed anyway because it was just total stock flathead. It wouldn't have, you know, <laughs> wouldn't have done anything, but uh, it was my pride and joy, you know, and uh, again, that's what took us to high school, took us to junior college. My wife and I, we car we dated in, we used to hang out at the original number one In-N-Out in Baldwin Park because that's where In-N-Out started, which has become a, in and out, you know, there's a lot of connections to, you know, racing. Uh, and big time for me because later on when I went to work at Irwindale, it was half owned by the founder of in and out So we'll probably get to that here. But um, so there's a real tight connection with me. And, and plus we're just, you know, in and out fans. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's interesting to me that 
So it sounds like you were just a fan of it. Right, yeah. It, it never, did you ever look at the cars, look at dragsters or even stalkers that were hopped up and think, well, I, I want to get behind the well, wheel Oh, absolutely. I had, I had visions of, of, of doing that at some point, you know, and I just never thought, I suppose I could have sacrificed some things over here and maybe pursued that end of it, but I, I never did. The closest I ever come to actually having a, a ride, and Don could relate to this, was that uh, Don Madden and John Guerin had a car that they were running out there at that time, and I got to know them pretty well, and they actually were going to let me get in that car because there was no licensing thing. You just got in and you drove. And, um, and, and this was a dragster? This is a dragster. This is a top fuel dragster. And... Um, I don't think they ever had any serious thoughts of me driving that car. But I thought, Jesus, if I can just get in there and push start it and let the clutch out, that'll be it. And I could not fit in that car. I mean, you're trying to put a size 12 guy in a size 9 car, and I, I couldn't work anything. And it just broke my heart. That I, I can't do this, guys. I can't do it. And it, probably the best thing that ever happened to me because, <laughs> I mean, because there were a lot of guys that, didn't make it through that episode. I mean, uh, those cars were, you know, they were pretty lethal. And uh, memory's been kind to that era as far as the, the safety end of things. But uh, there were a lot of guys that got hurt, got tore up, got killed in those cars. And um, if I'd have gone down that road, who knows what would have happened. I'm, I wish I could have done it, but on the other hand, it's probably good that I didn't. So tell me about your first job. At San Gabriel. At San Gabriel? Well, my wife and I had got married in September of 1960, and we moved into a little rental house that my uncle owned in Baldwin Park. And it was basically right across the street from a little neighborhood market, and the butchers in that market were the owners of San Gabriel. It was Jack and Will Tice, and uh, there was a third partner. And um, we shopped in that little market, and I knew that they operated the racetrack, and it, it, it took me a little while to get up enough nerve to ask, ask them if they ever needed any help out there. And so I asked uh, the one brother, Jack Tice, uh, he said, well, yeah, what can you do? I said, well, whatever you need, you know. And uh, so, yeah, come on out. We'll give you 10 bucks a week. And he gave me a, it looked a, a, like a referee's shirt. It was black and white striped. And Man, I remember when he gave me that shirt. I took that thing home and I hung it up in our bedroom and I looked at that shirt, I think, all night long, looking, I'm going to be able to wear that shirt. I'm going to go out there. And $10 at that time would be equivalent to probably 100 today or more. So it actually helped your budget, you know, young couple. And um, so I was an art major in school. I never wound up getting a degree, but I was, you know, in commercial art. So when it was come time to put the numbers on the cars, when the guys came through, I didn't just use uh, shoe polish or whatever. I had some white poster paint with the regular brushes. I mean, you wound up with a nice number on your car, and a lot of guys left them there. I mean, that, so, and I think the guys uh, saw I was kind of serious about it. The next thing I started writing uh, results stories for Drag News, and you'll see my name on some of the earlier drag news issues uh, from that era. And I started writing some of the copy for the radio ads. And it just one thing led to another. And um, so I guess I kind of established myself. Well, then the track shut down in 1963. It was not there a long time. And um, so there was a time period, there was no racetrack. Uh, Jack Tice had taken over Fontana and tried to run it for a while. So I, I worked for him out there. Was a, that was a hard drive getting out to Fontana. There was no freeways back then. So just to get from San Gabriel out to Fontana, Christ probably, probably took two hours to get out there, you know, up Foothill Hill Boulevard all the way through. And, um, but when they opened up Irwindale, one of, the, one of the owners that was partners with the Tice brothers wound up being involved in Irwindale Raceway, which opened in October of 65. And they contacted me, but I'd be interested in, you know, working part-time. At that time, I was a service writer in a Ford agency in Garden Grove. And, of course, I, I was, you know, and I started working out there part-time. 
kind of doing some of the same things, writing the articles for Drag News and just working at the event, doing whatever had to be done. And that escalated up to where I eventually wound up managing the track. Hmm. It, when you went to school, you said you majored in art or you studied art, commercial art. Right. Was your plan to be like a commercial designer? Or? Well, I probably didn't have a real good plan, you know, and marriage probably got in the way of that. And, uh, um, but I always had a knack for art. It's just something that kind of came to me. And but, you know, I pinstriped some cars in high school. I mean, they weren't great, but they weren't bad, you know. My buddies, you know, they were free. I was doing you know, so. I, I was good enough to do okay at it, but not good enough to probably make a living at it. And I probably didn't really enjoy it. I mean, I do art projects, and it seemed more like work than just really enjoying it. And uh, so I just kind of let it go. And my wife was a good artist. Um, it's something that seems to run in our family. My daughters, my granddaughter, are just terrific artists. Uh, and uh, so that seems to be a family trait. But um, I don't know what it would have, if I had not stumbled into this drag racing thing, I really don't know where I would have wound up. I mean, I had di different working men's jobs along the way, a retail clerk in a supermarket, a uh, milk route for Nudson Creamery, a commercial route. I did that for a couple of years, uh, working at the Ford Agency as a service writer. Um, I didn't really have a good plan. I look back on it. I wish I'd have had more, maybe more direction from my family as far as education. I think I could have probably, I think I'm smart enough, I could have probably done whatever I would have chosen, but I just didn't pursue it hard enough. On the other hand, I don't regret the way things went because I made a decent living doing something I enjoyed for the most part for a lot of years. So. It all kind of worked out. That sounds like success to me. <laughs> well, it, I think it was. I mean, I'd look back on things that the racing thing brought to our family. I mean, we we had a nice life. We didn't I didn't get rich at it, but we did okay, you know. And it's uh, plus I got to work around the people and the, the activity that I enjoy. So I, I'm in a way I'm really fortunate to have done that. I mean, I know a lot of guys would have loved to have done the things that I was able to do and uh, places I was able to go, experiences I had. Uh, and uh, so it all worked out, you know. Basically, I've been blessed, you know. Blessed that my marriage lasted, you know, a long time until my wife passed, uh, 59 years, great kids, great grandkids. So I, I got no real complaints. Yeah, it sounds pretty, pretty okay. It's not bad. <laughs> I want to go back to a couple of things. Uh, the closing of San Gabriel, was that just urban sprawl that brought that on or? Um, well, I say that the original San Gabriel, they took it out because of um, the flood control channel. I mean, that was something that the Corps of Engineers did all that work down through there. The second San Gabriel was on a piece of property that belonged to Edison Company and Edison chose to if you go by there now on that piece of property, there's these huge power lines that are still there, and that's why that piece of property went away. And um, so, again, it's just development of the area around there and a better use for the land than there was for a drag strip. The San Gabriel, the second San Gabriel was a pretty successful track, and it, it came along at the time when the NHRA was going through the, the fuel ban. And so they were able to capitalize on that. And um, the Tice, uh, especially Jack Tice, the older of the two brothers, pretty good promoter. And he took care of the racers. And um, my first business trip ever with Jack said, we're going to go to San Francisco and visit with some of the guys up there. I would talk about uh, Champion Speed Shop and Ted Gotelli and Masters and Richter and Romeo Palamides. And I can't remember, probably a couple more guys from the Bay Area because at that time you had pockets of activity and you could have a huge top fuel show just in the Bay Area. You could have one in Sacramento. I mean, the cars were out there. And so I got to ride with him to the Bay Area and his new Thunderbird and man, I was, I was styling. I got to walk into these guys' shops and everything and I'm 
I don't think I even had a title at <laughs> San Gabriel, but it was a big deal. And then, you know, he'd make deals with those guys to come down and run their cars to San Gabriel. And uh, for a short period of time, it was only a couple of years, uh, I think San Gabriel was, you know, it was not, it probably never achieved the stature that Lions did, because I think Lions, you almost have to set it apart from its status and the, you know, the track, but San Gabriel for a period of time did pretty good. I mean, all the big name guys ran out there, you know, the Garlitz, Ivo, Vance Hunt, Chris, I mean, they all showed up at San Gabriel at one time or other. And, um, and it was a lot of fun, you know, putting on those races. And, uh, but it was, again, it was only there for a couple of years. Yeah. I'm wondering, did you were you able to, as much as you had these responsibilities at San Gabriel, did it keep you from going to other tracks, or did you get to go to an well, experience? Well, yeah, I mean, know? we went to other tracks, you know, and um, of course, Bakersfield was a big deal back then. In 1959, actually, my first trip to Famoso would have been in 1957. You know, I was only 17 years old, and a trip to Bakersfield back then it was more, I mean, there was no freeways. I mean, you had to work your way out through the San Fernando, from Baldwin Park anyway. I mean, it was a, over the ridge route, which is probably two lanes back then. And so it was a, it was an adventure to go to Bakersfield. But I went up there several times uh, in the 58, early 50, in 59 was when, of course, at that time, I, I was really hooked with the drag racing thing. And I'd, I'd have to drive over to Blair's Speed Shop in Pasadena to get a copy of Drag News to keep up. I mean, you got no internet, there's no television shows, the magazines are always two or three months behind. So back then, I mean, if you were keeping up with the sport, Drag News was it. And that was a big deal to go to Blair's. You know, I couldn't find a place anywhere closer to get a copy. And, um, but when the announcement came out that Garlitz was gonna come to California in March of 1959. Well, me and my two buddies um, from high school, I mean, in the orange Ford, my first Ford, I mean, we're going to Bakersfield. And um, I'm watching, you know, the Ivo car here and watch Tommy win top gas eliminator at that event. And, you know, the original car and see Art Christman who later become a really close friend, you know, win that race against Tony Waters in the twilight, you know. And, it was a Woodstock event. I mean, it was a big deal. And I'm not sure, you know, there's still a lot of people around that made that trip to Bakersfield, but um, I think just being one of those guys, uh, it's kind of special to have that, uh, you know, in the back of your head. And um, hell, we were doing pretty good. I mean, most people were sleeping in their cars. We actually had a hotel room. My, my two buddies, some little mom and pop hotel down on Union Avenue. And, Bakersfield, but it uh, it was a hell of an experience, you know. And uh, of course, I made you know some of the following events: 1960, 61. I can't remember the first Bakersfield I missed. I probably made the first 15 of them in a row, and I actually started working at those events later on as I as I wound up getting kind of established in the sport. I I worked the staging lanes for some of those March meets. I was a guy down there. That, send two more, you know, and that was kind of fun because you could run a lot of cars back then. You could, <laughs> we yeah. could talk about that a lot. But um, so I worked at uh, some of the earlier Bakersfield events also. And I went to Lyons some and went to, uh, you know, Fontana. Went, my wife and I, when we were dating, we went to the Colton track quite a bit. Went to Riverside, saw the Greek run December 59 for the first time. A miracle. I mean, I'm 19 years old, and I see this guy race for the first time. I'm just out of high school a year, and he's still, I mean, he just hung it up here this year. I mean, that's pretty incredible, you know. That's amazing, but, yeah. And um, so, yeah, I mean, we went to a lot of stuff like that, and, uh, uh, and a lot of guys did then, too, you know. And I think um, in somewhere along the line, I established a relationship with the NHRA, and that led off a whole different direction. I want to go back to Bakersfield, okay. the 59 meet, because um, you said that's it was kind of like Woodstock of drag racing. Tell me more about that. Like, was it number of cars, number of people? Was it well, both? Well, I, I think was it back then, I mean, almost every week you could pick up the 
drag news and somebody was going faster and quicker. I mean, it was just, you know, and there was this guy from Florida that all of a sudden started, you know, 176, I think was the number that was out there at that time. And were, were you one of the guys, because I know there was a lot of this on the West Coast, there were a lot of guys who just said, it can't be real. Their clocks aren't right. Those guys back there, they, they, they're cheating. Something's going well, on. He's not going that fast. There might have been some of that. I, I think there was, you know, we're, it, I think there was kind of a pride in your local area. And how can this guy out of the swamps in Florida come and run this fast? But, um, but now we're going to get a chance to see, okay? And so um, it was kind of interesting because in late 1958, I went to Baker, uh, Bakersfield for an event, and Bobby Langley was there, and he was out of Texas, a car called the Scorpion. And I think it was November of 58, he had come to California to pick up a set of M&H tires, which really made a huge difference in the sport when Marv Rifkin developed a set of made-for-purpose you know, slicks. And Ernie Hashem was one of his main guys. Hashem had a speed shop. Bobby Langley was at Bakersfield in late 58. So it's kind of cool to see one of these guys from out of state, you know. And, I mean, it was hard. There was no freeways. There was no interstate then. So to come from Texas to California or, my God, from Florida, that was a big deal. And I think, I really think that event with Bobby Langley may have motivated the Bakersfield guys to pursue getting garlets out here. And... They struck a deal, and I think Iskenderian was involved in the deal, and a guy named Don Smith, and they put together a two or three race package for Garlitz to come out. And uh, I mean, there were guys that basically put cars together for that event, but it's all sportsmen. I mean, there was, you couldn't really call it professional racing back then. They were top fuel cars, but almost everybody involved were working class guys. I mean, uh, maybe a few of them had a little more money than the other ones, but there was no sponsorship. There was no corporate considerations. It was just guys wanting to go out there and see how fast they could go. And, and in some ways, in some ways even winning was, not, it, it, the speed was almost as big a deal going fast as winning a race. I mean, it was almost some of a, I'll call it Bonneville mentality or Dry Lakes mentality. There was as much pride in having top time as there was maybe winning the race. And even the way the races were structured, I mean, all the top fuel, all the double A fuel dragsters would race. And then at the end, that guy would have to race maybe a modified roadster for top eliminator, which, I mean, the whole structure was totally different back then. I mean, it was a big deal to win a race, but it was as big a deal to go fast and Garlitz was going fast. And then in the advent of the, I mean, superchargers had been around, but Garlitz, he didn't have one. I mean, he was running just this eight car thing. And then of course, Art Christman stepped up and ran 180 out at Riverside. And boy, no, we, things are moving up. And I, so when Garlitz got to town in March of 59, I can't remember exactly. I think he ran pretty good but the handwriting was on the wall. If he's going to stay, he's going to have to go with the supercharger. And I think he had one on, I think, the next uh, next event. And wasn't long after that, he wound up getting burned. You know, he, uh, uh, but um, it was fun watching all that happen. But yeah, there was some, you know, there was some, I guess, some, and some of it was righteous skepticism because there were some games being played with it the times, you know, they just weren't right, you know. And I think at one time there were tracks out there that they wanted the reputation of being the fastest drag strip out there. And um, so they monkeyed with the clocks. I've got the old Krondek clocks had a conversion chart. And you would, the clocks you would read, you would read the ET, that was, but then the other time would be a time for the speed trap, which is 132 feet. And that number, you'd go to this chart, and it showed you what that speed was. Well, I came across a, a conversion chart where the track operator would actually cut out the blocks of numbers and moved them all up <laughs> one session. So, I mean, 
the clock readers were just reading the number, they, you know, but it was, I mean, it was cheating. I mean, they, they were giving guys phony times. And do you mind, <clears throat> do you mind sharing with us what track that was? Well, it, has enough time passed? <laughs> yeah, it, 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 I, I think it came out of Fontana. Okay. okay, and I wound up with it somehow. I didn't. It, it showed up on me. I, I I wound up with some strange things on my desk every once in a while, and that was one of them. But I think it came from Fontana, and I'm not sure which track operator. But I mean, and some of the times, you know, and, and you hate to go there. You know, the Greeks' first 200 mile an hour run. It's you can't help but question: Was that really? the first 200, you just, it's kind of hard to imagine a guy going out and just picking up 15 miles an hour overnight, you know? And when you know the kind of clocks they had, it's suspect, but, but I wouldn't dare question the Greek on anything. I mean, so I'll, I'll, I'll you know, but same with Ivo, I love Ivo, but to get the first five second run at a match race on a Saturday night, when nobody else has come close to a five, it probably didn't happen, you know? It, and there's so many things that can go wrong with a timing system that uh, can give you a phony time. You know, either it's intentional or just an accident. I mean, some of those old timers was literally an air hose that ran across the end of the track. Well, if you skipped over that air hose and you triggered it with the rear wheels, I mean, all of a sudden you shortened that trap and it's going to affect your speed. And I mean, it, same with ET. I mean, earlier on, the guys would stage a foot behind the line, and when they went into the clock, that's what would start the elapsed time. Well, if you jump that, all of a sudden you're going to start the elapsed time late. It's going to catch somewhere in a car. So you're going to get up a, a lot better ET, but it's not real. Slowly, they devised things to. Um, and you know the systems now are pretty pretty foolproof, but um, there were some there were some bad bad times. I mean, I knew guys who would make a trip to Green Valley, Texas, because they knew they were going to run quicker down there than they ran anywhere else. They would go there intentionally to set an NHRA record in whatever class. I mean, one guy even threatened to sue him one time because they gave legitimate times that year. <laughs> He was he was highly indignant that he made a trip all the way to Green Valley. I paid good money to get this record. I made good money to come down here and get a record, and I get you know real time. But games were being played, you know, and it's unfortunate because I mean it's hard to really know who ran, truly ran the first 200 mile an hour run. You know, was it was it Garlitz? Was it the Frantic Four? Was it Coletta? Was it? I mean. With the Greek, I mean, did he? I, well, I don't know. I don't know. That's when later on, when the 300 barrier came in, it was a big deal. And I wanted you know, the role I had at that time to try to make sure that there was no, you know, um, no question, no phony time, because things can happen even today. I mean, a, a bird fly through the lights or a piece of paper or something, anything can happen. And once that number is on the scoreboard, or the announcer hits it or something, it's out there. And I just, I just wanted to see the right guy got the 300 mile an hour credit when it happened. And I could discuss that in a little more depth if you want to go there. But, um, but anyway, going back to those earlier days, um, it, it was just fascinating to see the cars, and the cars had so much personality to them. I mean, they were, they were not cookie cutter cars. You could look across you know, a quarter mile away, and you knew that was Art Christmas Hustler, you knew that was, uh, you know, whoever it was, you know, and uh, it just was so much more enjoyable back then, and you didn't know what was gonna come through, where, you know, one engine, two engines, there was three engine cars, there was a few four-wheel drive cars that came out, there were sidewinders. Um, really fascinating to just wait and see what was gonna happen next, and guys were trying a lot of different things, you know, and it's, uh, it just was a good time to be around it. I can't imagine. Well, it, was, it, was, it was pretty cool. <laughs> Can I ask you real quick, because uh, I, I try to ask everybody who's, who's in your age group who would have been able to have access to all these tracks, to a guy like me who's only read about them. Uh, it's an amazing thing, just the idea that there could be so many drag strips around Los Angeles. 
in the in the 1950s right. and, and early 60s. Uh, can you give a quick take on what this track was like, what this track was known for? You know, Saugus compared to Fontana, compared to Saint. You know, well, you know, there's there's some of them I never got to. Yeah, I, I didn't get Maybe to Saugus. Was probably closed by the time. Yeah, it was closed. Um, I only made it to Santa Ana once, and um, I don't you know, I don't really have a lot of recollection of that time I went to Santa Ana. Went to Lyons quite a few times. Um, again, I'm a, a, a San Gabriel, and we had had San Gabriel, we had Pomona, which was real active back then. It was pretty easy to get to Pomona. And Colton was easier to get to than San Fernando. I think I only went to San Fernando once. So we had enough stuff to keep us busy right here in an occasional trip to Bakersfield because it would be a big event. And then the fuel ban had a lot to do with this at the time. Um, but, you know, Lions had its own unique reputation and it probably deserves that because there was a the biggest name racers of all time were steady guys there but i think that two-year period at san gabriel was pretty damn good it these facilities were pretty rough i mean there were no guardrails um you know the track was just a strip of asphalt down through there and we hadn't gotten into any kind of track prep uh it was pretty basic pretty primitive and, um, you know, Riverside was kind of a neat track because it was really long and you could, uh, you know, it, it was unique. It had its own personality. Um, but most of them were pretty crude. Or Irwindale, even the original Irwindale, which was a purpose-built track, if you look back on it, pretty rough. I mean, down the middle of a rock quarry down there and single old steel guardrail and lights that were substandard and, you know, they... Um, we think back on these places uh, kindly because they were pretty, you know, um, Fontana. When they built the Fontana track, I mean, instead of a guardrail, it had us cables going down there. And Les Ritchie, who was a big name, could have been a, probably a big name funny car guy later on, he decapitated when he got into that uh, cable out there. Uh, these places were not safe. Uh, San Gabriel, I saw a fellow named Bruce Woodcock, uh, car club in the Rakers were a group of guys and got off the side of the track and drove it into a generator and, and didn't survive, you know? So they, these places were not safe. And, uh, but at that time, everybody seemed to be willing to accept this is what we're doing. And the cars were getting a lot faster. I mean, it was, things were picking up pretty damn fast and out, outgrew the racetracks, basically. First track I ever saw a guardrail at was Carlsbad. And we went down there for an event. And my God, when I looked down there and I saw these steel rails right alongside the racetrack. I thought, how in the hell is this gonna work, you know? In the end, it was probably the best thing that happened because at least the guys, when they got out of shape, they weren't gonna try to get off in the dirt and drive out of it. And I saw that happen a lot. I saw Caramacini's at San Gabriel, throw a rooster tail of dirt in the air. I mean, he never, he got off the side of the track, not that far, never lifted. I mean, back on the racetrack and finished the run. And that, <laughs> you had those guys and bull riders out there then that would do that. Yeah. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And, um, and when it didn't, I mean, I look at some of the, the footage at Lions when Rick Stewart in that seven second love affair, when he crashed that car down through there, he could have just as easily drilled one of those telephone poles down there as somehow thread his way in between and basically get out of it. A lot of it was just sheer luck. And, um, uh, but you know, the tracks were all different. Pomona was really, uh, it was a nice track because it was all paved. You know, you didn't have to deal with a lot of dirt. You were actually in the parking lot for the fairgrounds there. Um, but the same thing, there was no guardrails, guys, had a chance to run into that pump house down at the end of the track and trees and or run off the end and go into the golf course. Uh, I mean, it, uh, <laughs> you didn't know what was gonna happen next back then because you know it was kind of before parachutes had came along and a lot of the safety equipment. And it was just a steady progression of making things better for the cars and better for the racetracks and 
man, the sport's altogether different now. It's uh, in some ways hard to recognize when that phase, you know, and the cost has gone up. I've got some good friends of mine that retired from racing in the late 50s because it got too expensive. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean uh, unbelievable, you know, but it's all relative, I guess, you know, and if, if they were going to have to go to the next whatever it was, I mean, and as soon as you've got that, and the other guy's got it, well, now we got to, you know, you're back to square one. And that's what's in some ways really made the sport so tough today that there's, there's enough people out there with enough money that it's hard to outspend anybody anymore. And uh, I don't know, I've kind of got a bleak outlook on the sustainability of what's going on these days in the sport of drag racing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one to figure it is. where this is going. Yeah, just the spectator count being what it is and the expense, that's just such a, yeah. you know, how, how's that business model gonna make I, I don't see how it can sustain. Um, at, at some point, somebody's Losing gonna have sponsorship, to, I yeah, mean, it's just, it's, yeah. Um, I think there's some dark clouds on the motorsports horizon. And we, this pandemic thing certainly didn't help, but I think those problems are there anyway. And, uh, I think it's going to have to somehow almost be reinvented at some point, if it's even going to survive. You know, it's, we talk about when I was a kid, it was very easy to just drive down the road, and here's the drag strip you could pull in, either to watch or run your car. That's, what, that's hard to do anymore. I mean, there's places in the country where there's local drag strips, but here in Southern California, it's really difficult for a young guy, that if he did have that interest, just to get involved. So he does something else. And, um, and I think a lot of that's happening in these racetracks around the country that are closing, you don't see a new one being built. I mean, when that property value becomes just too much for something else, some other purpose, and that track goes away, hardly ever is there a new one to take its place. And unless you're fortunate to, enough to live in an area where there may be a track outside of town you know, and there's quite a few of those still around the country, but unfortunately not enough to keep, and especially in Southern California. I think Southern California is just, it's a tragedy that there really isn't a, you know, Irwindale, they do what they can with the, the late mile track. You know, Barona does what they can do. Fontana, I think Fontana is going to be going away with this redevelopment thing that's happening out there. It's just, it's just tough to get involved. So you do something else, and um, um, that's a shame. This, to me, gets us into the Hot Rod Reunion, the Nitro Revival, and, um, but we're not there yet. Well, now we're talking. There you have it, another great episode of the Rodcast, brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation. My name is David Steele, and it has been a pleasure to bring you this part one of our series of interviews with Steve Gibbs. We certainly hope you've enjoyed this episode. We can assure you that we are just getting started. So tune in next time to hear more about Steve's early years with the NHRA and the many chapters that led to his development of things like the NHRA Hot Rod Reunions, as well as his own event that is now in its fourth go around, the Steve Gibbs Nitro Revival. If you'd like to learn more about this year's event, you can hop over to nitrorevival.com, purchase tickets or merchandise, and just be kept up to date on all the goings-on with what is unquestionably one of the greatest nostalgia drag racing events on the planet. Because, after all, its producer, uh, well, he might just know a thing or two about what drag racers want and what drag racing fans crave. So, with that, we want to give special thanks, as always, to our announcer, Larry Babb, and all the staff here at Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California. Our PR person is Angela Helton with Social Media Management, coming from Crystal Hayes. Technical assistance from Eric Curtis, Katie Sloan, and Cole Koontz. And as always, all Rodcast music is written and performed by me. Special thanks to our archivist and historian, Jim Miller, who's always doing the heavy lifting, keeping us honest. 
The American Hot Rod Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and was founded in 2002 by Steve and Carol Mamishian for the sole purpose of documenting and preserving the history of hot rodding. Without their generosity and passion for this work, none of this would be possible. As always, if you'd like to learn more about the foundation, just hop over to our website, ahrf.com. You can support us there by checking out our merchandise, making a donation, or becoming a supporting member of the foundation. You can follow us across all our social media channels, and we'll provide you with daily postings consisting of historical images pulled from the archives, as well as information on future episodes of the Rodcast. Thank you again to Steve Gibbs for his generosity, and we thank you for tuning in to this latest episode of the Rodcast. Thanks for listening to another great episode of the Rodcast, brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation.